0: We were very surprised that when we decided to go, that was the hardest part.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, I always tell people that the hardest part from us, I think, was realizing that we needed to overhaul our lives and that whatever we were doing wasn't working for us, but we realized we needed a change. And that was a lot harder to cope with, I think.
2: That was Richard Nashley Giordano of Desk to De Glory. I'm Wade, your host. In this episode, we're getting to know the dynamic Canadian duo known as Deaths to Glory. Deciding to follow their wanderlust calling, they fixed up an aging Toyota pickup that predates our present-day Tacomas and Tundras and set off to explore the world. Always up for a challenge, they even headed to the northernmost village in Canada in the middle of the winter, a journey that took them straight into treacherous sub-freezing winter storms. You're gonna wanna hear their amazing story. Are your travels taking you into cold country? If so, you might wanna check out the latest maps on Gaia GPS, Gaia Winter. Specifically tailored for winter, this new trail map details ski runs, which look amazing when you view them using the 3D function. Even the color scheme of the map is winterish. Gaia Winter pairs up perfectly with all the other winter and snow related maps. From snow depths to the 24, 48, and 72 hour snow forecast, and of course, the avalanche forecast. You have all the winter tools you need for your next cold weather adventure. Just don't forget to bring your mittens. Want a sweet discount on a premium Gaia GPS subscription? You don't even have to go out in the snow to get that. Stay warm and go to www dot guy gps.com off-road podcast to check out the deal now on to richard nashley's story as they go from desk to glory hey richard ashley thank you so much for joining us uh, today on the podcast i know you guys have a very busy schedule right now so thanks for taking the time
1: thanks for having us yeah thank you for having us
2: Well, we're pretty excited to uh, hear your story. I've been following you for a pretty long time now, but for the benefit of our listeners that might not be all that familiar with you, how about giving us a little bit of your background before the adventure travel bug bit you?
1: You start. Okay.
2: (laughs) So before the adventure bug bit us, we
0: were living and working in Vancouver. We would lived there for about a decade, lived downtown, worked downtown, worked professional jobs. I was a mechanical engineering technologist and Ashley was a paralegal working at a law firm. And, you know, we did all the things that we thought were normal, things that we're supposed to do, got married, bought an apartment, worked. And at some point, I guess the learning curve at work kind of plateaued and for both of us and started looking for something else. I actually started photographing weddings, getting a little bit more into photography, but all while working full-time or more than full-time. And Ashley was dove into what was a herbal medicine, uh, nutritional nutritionist first, right?
1: Yeah, I studied nutrition on the side. And then while we were at our jobs, we would always take time off like two weeks, but we would always try to get an extra week unpaid so we could go travel. And so the first trip we did together was Well, there was Cuba and uh, that was interesting because we went to like an all-inclusive resort for a week and we found that we got bored after like two days. And so (laughs) that changed how we traveled after that. So our next trip, was we found really cheap flights to Japan. They were like $500 return. So we decided to go there.
0: Yeah. So then after Japan, we backpacked Southeast Asia and again, three or four weeks. And then the next year, we went through Jordan, Israel, and Turkey. And on that trip, we rented a car for a lot of the travel through Israel. Mm -hmm. And it opened our eyes to what we can do on our own with our own
2: vehicle when traveling. Mm -hmm. So you started off doing fairly conventional travel, like most of us, and then you say you rented a car. Were there people in the overlanding community once you got that idea that inspired you?
0: Definitely. I still to this day don't really know how I found these blogs, but we came across Mm -hmm. blogs from Ruined Adventures, Brenton and Shannon, um, Home on the Highway, Lauren and James, Lost World of the Dangers. uh, Jen
1: and Brian of the Dangers.
0: And then um, Luis and Lacey from Lost World Expedition, So wasn't a whole bunch of, if any, YouTube content on travel that we knew of. But Mm -hmm. I was reading all of these blogs of people driving either old Volkswagens or old Toyotas and traveling through South America. And at some point, I was like, we've got to do this. I didn't know when or how, but kind of just put it in my back pocket just in case.
2: Right. And so you decided that you were going to join that, uh, at that time, There weren't that many people doing it, but you were going to join that group. Explain how that decision came about and your actions to make it happen.
1: It was kind of born out of a period of burnout. That's Uh what really started us on this journey because Richard and I were both working our full-time jobs and then working on the side, our little side hustles, and we just didn't make time for fun. And we kind of talked with each other and we're like, why are we doing what we're doing? And what is the next step for us? And I just felt really tired and I wanted to change and we both knew we needed a change in our lives. And so we just decided we loved traveling and we thought, you know, why don't we go to Nepal or India and backpack because we knew our money could go far there and we could see a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, so those was our original plan. But then Richard brought up these blogs that he had been reading and we... We thought that would be a cool adventure. Maybe we would go as far as Mexico, maybe we would go as far as Panama, we weren't sure. So that's kind of how that all began.
2: So now then you're going to do a vehicle-based adventure travel. So that begs the question, you know, we have to have a vehicle. Where did you find your vehicle?
0: Because I'd been following all of these blogs with these old Toyota 4Runners with little four-cylinder engines driving around. South America I thought that was the way to do it
1: like we had a very small idea about what overlanding was at the time because that's what we mm-hmm. knew so we didn't really knew that people would take like RVs or man trucks or vans, ba- yeah, vans or any we just saw people taking like old like land cruisers and forerunners so that's we were like oh that's mm-hmm. what you do that's like what you take to South yeah. America yeah
0: so. and at the time my mom and her husband had a plumbing business and my sister was working for them, and their little runaround truck was this 1990 Toyota pickup, four-cylinder, five-speed, that was just beat on constantly. I think during the time that they had it, I don't, I assume oil was never changed or maintenance, no maintenance was done. <laughs> it just always had tools in the back and a heat pump in the back and pipe, garbage, whatever, and just was ridden hard and put away wet, over and over and over and over, and over again. At some point when my sister got tired of it smelling like mold on the inside because it was constantly leaking through the cracked windshield and everything else, she just parked it and stopped driving it. But I saw that as the perfect foundation to start with. <laughs> so yeah, I was sitting and ended up sitting in my dad's backyard at some point, I was like, "Can I buy this because this is exactly what we need." That was it. It was We didn't look farther beyond than like the option that we had at
2: close at home. And when you talk about it being a Toyota pickup, is my understanding is it's a 1990 correct yep. well that's before there was even tundra and tacoma correct you know, yeah was just yeah uh, toyota had one pickup that they sold in north america so how did you outfit it
0: it's funny looking back because we spent so little time getting it ready we spent about four weekends kind of <laughs> prepping the truck for a trip so the first weekend i put a an old man suspension system in it because the shocks were shot and the rear springs were sagging from having all this weight in the back constantly. So Mm -hmm. we did that and that alleviated most of the chassis problems, just fixed a couple of the, I think we replaced tie rod ends and ball joints. So the steering was solid as well. And then the next weekend I had Ryan out at Disturbed Industries in Abbotsford build me a new long block engine because the one that was in it was pretty worn out and Mm -hmm. had 320 or something thousand kilometers on it
1: the truck still ran though like before the swap it fired up immediately the first time i think you tried it so that was good but it did need a refresh yeah
0: every single vital engine sensor sensor had failed but it was still running and driving (laughs) without issue (laughs) so um but yeah so the engine clutch flywheel the next weekend um did the interior the next because it had been leaking so we did just trying to like refresh it to at least 90s standards, put new seats in it and carpet. And then the last thing we did was a canopy, a shell on the back, rooftop tent, and fridge.
1: I think that was it. And that was it.
0: And then we jammed all of our garbage in the back and left. So, <laughs>
1: and keep in mind, like the truck was located at Richard's dad's house, which it, mm-hmm. it was like two ferry rides away from where we lived at the time in Vancouver. And so Richard would do this long six-hour trek every weekend back oh, wow. to his dad's place to, to yeah. do all this work on the truck. It was a lot of work, but obviously yeah. worth it.
2: And to do the math, to put this in perspective, it's a 1990 pickup truck. This is 2013 that you're getting ready to do your trip, right? Yeah. So this is a 23-year-old vehicle at this point. Yeah. Which is why people drive Toyotas, you know, because they just keep on going. Now, your truck wound up with a name, correct? Yeah, it ended up with the name Little Red. It's very creative. It's a little red truck.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I think some friend. we were sitting around with friends or something, yeah. and that name came up. Our friend
0: Toby, I think, brought that Toby, up. Toby,
1: yes. yes. And we were talking about it in Spanish. Yep. We were like, what's <laughs> called this uh, truck? So, yeah.
2: Well, what is, what's his name in Spanish? Uh, is it in Poco Rojo? Pocino Rojo
1: or something? I can't
2: remember my Spanish. Yeah, our
1: Spanish now. is so bad. Yeah. Something uh, Rojo. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And you and you still have Little Red, correct? We do. Yeah. We've actually been more or less living, we're, we've changed some things, but we've essentially been road tripping out of it since
2: May.
1: hmm
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Time is flying.
1: Yes. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So besides getting your uh, truck ready to go for the trip, what else did you do to in this very short planning window that you had to just completely change your life and take off on the road? What else happened?
0: Uh, first thing I did was quit my job and <laughs> they immediately said, well, how about instead of quitting, you just go on a leave of absence so you can come back and you can leave all of your stuff okay. here. Um, yeah,
1: that was great. Bo-
0: both of our employers at the time were pretty excited about what we were doing mm-hmm. and happy to support us. So instead of saying, "Yeah, see, ya, get out of here." They were like, "Well, anytime you want, come back."
1: Yeah, that so, was really nice. Yeah. 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 And then
0: we mm-hmm. then we just made a list of things we needed to do.
1: We had to rent out our apartment and we moved we actually moved all of our furniture and belongings into my parents' basement which is very generous of them at the time. <laughs> I don't yeah. think they'll let us do that again. Actually, they, they won't they let won't. us
0: do it again. They definitely not um, they, they didn't. Let us do that again.
1: Yeah. So that was very kind of them. I, they probably didn't realize how long we were actually going to be gone for. Um, and, and then
0: there was a lot of things like canceling subscriptions and canceling utility bills and cell phone bills and so on. All the things that we didn't need on, on insurance. the road.
2: Insurance.
1: Yeah. Like travel insurance mm-hmm. and stuff like that.
2: Yeah, it's a pretty big task to just completely unravel your life and sort of rebuild it again around a, a totally different way of living. So I can imagine there were tons and tons of little details and not much time to do them in.
0: So, yeah, we, yeah, we we took about four months, I think, to make a decision and then complete all the tasks and leave. But we I th- we were very surprised that when we decided to go, that was the hardest part. The rest was mm-hmm. just checking things off a list, making a list, process, right.
1: Yep. Mm-hmm. Yes. I always tell people that the hardest part from us, I think, was realizing that we needed to overhaul our lives and that whatever we were doing wasn't working for us, but we realized we needed a change. And that was a lot harder to cope with, I think, than actually doing, like making taking action. The taking action part was actually easy after we had made the decision.
2: And was there a particular need in your life that was driving that decision? Because you talk about it being a very profound decision. What was behind that?
1: We were going about our lives in the way that we thought that we should. I think Richard alluded to that a little bit. And then we realized it wasn't working for us. We we were both, you know, doing these professional jobs and we thought we were doing the responsible thing and then looking through this these different lenses, I guess, at, at life and and what it means was a little bit different. I always say it's like pulling yourself out of the matrix. You're unplugging from the matrix in a way. You're like, oh, right. Mm-hmm. You no know, society's prescribed rules or decisions of what you think you should do. You all of a sudden mm-hmm. are like, wait, I don't have to do that.
0: I can do something else.
2: Yeah, these very conventional expectations, you know, that box you in into a specific path.
0: Yeah, and some of those conventional expectations I enjoy a lot. Me too. And oh, yeah. there mm-hmm. were a handful, and especially at a time, when we're like peace we're out time to go
1: yes (laughs) we're both all like the firstborn as well Mm -hmm. we're like the elder siblings, so we're we have those like classic firstborn characteristics maybe that's a generalization but we're both like we have to be responsible and like (laughs) independent and do things ourselves make our parents proud yeah and so um yeah, it's just looking at things a little differently.
2: That's funny you mentioned that. I mean, I'm a firstborn as well. And looking back over my life, you know, there were those expectations that mostly I placed on myself,
1: mm-hmm. Yeah. you
2: know, but I just felt like, you know, that was the way that I had to be. So, no, oh, interesting. I, I really enjoy listening to why people do what they did. You know, the why sometimes is uh, is a little bit more important than the actual what, uh, so that's great. Appreciate you sharing that. So October 2013, you guys are ready to go and you take off south, uh, kind of chasing the summer. Somewhere in that is where I began to first take notice of you because you started a blog. And I have to admit that I think your blog should be preserved forever. Uh, because, <laughs> Thank
1: you.
2: Well, well, the the cool thing about it was the writing was extremely tight and the photography was excellent. So you took about a month working your way down through the U.S. and uh, you hit uh, Baja, correct? Correct. Yeah. So this was the first time you had been in Mexico?
1: (laughs) I think we had been to Mexico for some weddings and things like that before, but we'd never driven Mm -hmm. down and we had never been to
0: Baja, I don't think. I would say that the only times we were down there were at all-inclusive resort for a wedding or something and not really traveling, more vacationing. Mm Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. So as you cross that first border and you begin to really get into that, were there any very early lessons learned and changes that you made along the way? We
0: crossed uh, at Tijuana with a couple of friends um, that we met on the way through the blog, I think, already.
1: Yes. Yep. And Which was great to cross with friends because I think we, mm-hmm. I wouldn't say we were nervous, but it was nice to go with somebody else you feel I I don't want to say safer necessarily but I think you're going into the unknown and in a group it's nice yeah
0: and so the thing that I liked about crossing into Baja for that first time is the same thing I like about traveling generally is that the culture or like the shock I always like the shock of (laughs) a different culture and (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know and Baja is different than mainland Mexico and everything and after being in Baja a couple times now. It's, it's kind of you know what to expect. But the first first time we went, no idea what to expect. You cross from San Diego and it's a stark difference from from San Diego, and I absolutely loved it. So I just turn on the local radio station, windows down, cruising the coast. Made our way down to Ensenada, got some fish tacos, and it was uh, yeah, pretty. It's fun.
1: <laughs> yeah, it was a lot of fun. I think we realized too it took us longer to catch up on sleep than we thought as well. (laughs) So (laughs) we were like tired for longer than we thought. And we didn't realize how burnt out we were and how, I think it took like two to four weeks for us to actually feel like we had decompressed when two weeks is that's typical. I think vacation allotment, uh, at a base level, at least in Canada. Mm Uh, but it, Is that enough? Like you, it takes time for you to decompress after all these years of working really hard. So that was surprising,
0: too. Yeah. So we decompressed on the beaches of
2: Baja, and it was yeah yeah hard to beat. There are worse places to decompress. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, So you guys have been kind of go go go. Was there a place where all of a sudden you realized that you know we're not really on a schedule here? You know, we can yeah. slow down. We can spend a day here if we want to spend a day. We can move if we want to. And all of a sudden, that feeling of freedom sort of sinks in.
0: I would say that would have been in Mexico for sure.
1: Yeah, definitely Baja.
0: Yeah, probably one of Bay of L.A. or Gonzaga Bay. Mm-hmm. One, one of the beaches on the um, Sea of Cortez side of things, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a point where we were in uh, Gonzaga Bay, and the Baja 1000 was starting a week later. So we decided to stay for a week and wait for it. And
2: mm-hmm. that,
1: that was really difficult for us to stay in one spot for a week. But it was also a really good lesson that we learned that you can. You can and it's worth <laughs> it.
0: Okay. Yeah. And, and especially yep. when you're not, we're not paying rent or mortgage or mm-hmm. utility bills. So for us to stay in one place for a week, you know, if it if it cost us fifty dollars in food, that's what it cost. It yeah. Just took took time, and we read and ran the beach and enjoyed. I guess.
2: <laughs> did you have a uh, kind of a final destination in mind whenever you left Canada on this trip? Was there a well? We're going to at least go this far and reassess, or how did that work?
1: Yeah, I think we had a vague idea that we were going to go to Panama. I don't know when this happened. It might've been in Mexico. I'm not sure, but we kept running into all these travelers that were coming North or going South. And they were talking about doing South America and how great it was. And eventually we were like, well, we'll just do South America too. Um, but we knew that that wasn't going to be able to happen on that trip just financially. Cause we, you know, four months mm-hmm. is not a long time to prepare. And so, yeah, we had an idea that we would do South America So we ended up getting as far as Costa Rica, and we had heard within our overlanding circle or Facebook group that there was somewhere to park. We decided to park our truck in that warehouse and go back home and work for a year to be able to go back down and finish.
0: When we went back to Vancouver to regroup, we had learned so much about budgeting properly, I guess,
1: Mm -hmm. properly,
0: quote unquote, (laughs) for us, that it made it significantly easier to save like over that next year Mm -hmm. because we knew what Mm -hmm. mattered and what didn't we knew how much money it cost to live on the road versus how easily that was spent in the city so we
1: knew per day how much it cost on average to live on the road and so when we were like oh should we go out for dinner and we would be like oh that dinner could cost us one day or something it could be other expenses so we really prioritized um it didn't mean we didn't have any fun like we were out hiking a lot and mm-hmm. doing things like that um spending gas money yeah. <laughs> but
0: but when we went back we went we rented a 400 square foot apartment that the lady barely rented to us because she thought it was too small for two people and yeah
1: then we, we showed she- her our blog we're like we lived in a tent a rooftop tent and she's like okay cool we'll
0: do it <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And then we just, we were very, very careful with the money that we, we spent every single day for a year. And, um, yeah, we just, we went back to our old jobs. We went back with letting them know that after a year we were, we were gone for good. It was great. Worthwhile. Um, the time that we spent going down, like driving down to Costa Rica, the amount of money that we spent there was well worth it in terms of knowing it, like learning how to budget. Mm Mm-hmm. For the future.
2: Yeah, I can see that, you know, basically it would change your entire view of how you're spending things. So after a year, you uh, get back to Costa Rica. Obviously, you had to uh, ship Little Red around the Darien Gap. Correct. How was that?
0: It was pretty straightforward. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was the reason, that was
2: one of the reasons
0: why we didn't expect to go farther than Panama because when we left, I felt like it was a, that was a, a big deal trying to deal with shipping logistics. But after you talk to a few people and you start making contacts and you start asking questions and you really dive into it, it makes, it's not that, not that difficult and doesn't cost as much as you would think. So mm-hmm.
2: It took what, about a year to, to handle uh, South America? It did. Yeah.
1: Well researched. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs>
0: what we your stuff. He knows everything. Yeah. <laughs>
2: Like I said, your blog, it, it was just this great travel story, you know, and I would just go, you know, go from uh, one entry to the next to the next to the next.
1: Oh
2: wow. Uh okay. Um <laughs> we we all have expectations whenever we travel, and some places meet those and some places don't, and some places way exceed our expectations. What countries along the way just blew you away? beyond what you had imagined?
1: Um, So we try really hard not to have any expectations. Obviously, you're going to have your own internal bias, but we really Mm. try to go in and like not even think about it. But I would say Peru, the Andes in Peru blew my mind. Mm -hmm. I have never seen mountains like that, although we haven't been to the Himalayas, so I don't know, but yeah, that was incredible. And then I would say Bolivia as well. Just like the, the nature... Out in the Altiplano, there and the difference in geography and the difference in terrain. Um,
0: in such it's a small really country. beautiful.
1: Yeah, yeah. Like I just yeah. had no idea. I would say those two. And I would agree. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah.
2: So you get to Ushuaia. Now then it's time to turn around because uh, climbing down the mountain is still climbing the mountain. <laughs> yeah. So. You uh, you ship your ship, little red. What was it, Jacksonville, Florida?
1: You got it.
2: But you, you you just don't go straight home. I mean, you take off up the east coast of of the United States. Which had you ever spent much time there before? None.
1: Well, okay, we went to New York oh. City for our honeymoon, but that's it.
2: Yeah. Okay, that's not it. Yeah. <laughs> so, that's yeah. not like
1: exploring <laughs> the east coast.
2: No, not at all. Yeah. So yeah, and then uh, then cut back across Canada to Vancouver. So. You were not in any big hurry to get home.
0: We kind of felt like we should start heading in the general direction of home. Mm
1: -hmm. So we
0: did. But Mm -hmm.
1: We definitely didn't explore the east coast or eastern side of the U.S. as much as we maybe wanted to. We kind of beelined Mm -hmm. north. It felt like a rush. but
0: The U.S. part was definitely a rush. We spent uh, a little bit of time exploring the maritimes and so the eastern part of Canada. Probably mm-hmm. a couple months.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, and then by the time we got to Toronto, we kind of started making moves a little faster, make our way west from there. Mm-hmm.
2: Right. Yeah. So through this whole trip, did there ever develop sort of a defined uh, division of labor between the two of you? Oh, yeah, most of that so yeah. came to this day. Who, who, took, on, who took on what roles?
1: So these roles, I think we fell into naturally just because of our mm. skill sets. Um, but I would say mine involved planning. So I did pretty much, I would say all, almost all of the research yep. and the planning that included where we were going to camp, what activities we were going to do. I was like glued to other people's overland or travel blogs, trying to pick out unique spots and stuff like that. I think we shared the cooking
0: responsibilities. Yeah, the camp stuff I think was just Yeah shared. Yep. And essentially I just drove to the places and was amazed whenever we arrived there. <laughs> and constantly just like in awe of like, Oh, did you know this was here? She's like, Yeah, that's why we came here. <laughs> She's like, I, I don't I don't take you to bad places.
2: <laughs> mm-hmm. So how did Little Red perform on the trip?
0: Great. Slow and loud, as usual, but always, always getting there. Mm-hmm. Um, the truck was great and, and performed, performed so well in Latin America because there are no freeways. I think yeah. that's, that's always the struggle, We're trying to make our way across the U.S., where the speed limit's 75 or 80 miles an hour, and the truck really prefers 65 or 70 on the freeway, yeah. especially fully mm-hmm. loaded. Throughout all of Latin America, I really never noticed... Obviously, underpowered because it makes like 100 horsepower, but super reliable, gets there every time.
1: You did a lot of preventative maintenance as
0: well. Yeah, and just always listening and watching. So mm-hmm. if it's making a weird noise or if the it feels like the um, alignment's off, just trying to figure out why that is. Always poke my hand underneath to see if there are leaks or if something's, if there's nuts or bolts coming loose. Just always having my eyes and, and ears. Paying attention to what's happening with the truck, and then that gives us time so that if something is is going wrong, that we can alleviate the problem at the next big town or big city.
2: Right, and probably no difficulty finding parts uh, because oh, wow. I mean Toyota Toyotas are all over the world, so it's it's pretty easy to source uh, anything you need.
0: A lot of the parts from this truck share are shared in, with Hiluxes, so whenever mm-hmm. we needed ball joints or tie rod ends, um, things like that. They were always on the shelf, ready to go. So, uh,
1: yeah. the only thing we couldn't track down was it. Was it the exhaust pipe?
0: Yeah. So we are somewhere in the mountains of Peru. Intermediate pipe cracked and broke off. So, you know, we were announcing our presence in these little tiny villages. With <laughs> little exhaust, <laughs> um, which so I, I fixed it with a soup can, a couple gear clamps, and some JB Weld, and. That actually lasted quite a long time. Um, it did, but like a
1: month or something. Yeah,
0: it was a couple thousand kilometers. Yeah,
1: because we were pretty remote at that. Well, relatively remote, yeah. I guess, at that point. That
2: Says the mechanical engineer with great pride that I fixed it with a soup can. I love that. <laughs> it, was, it was great, <laughs> um, but
0: but then at the same time, for like for a real fix, I wanted you know it done properly. So to like fix it the way I wanted it to be fixed, I think it took until we got to Lima. We did. Um, because mm. just, it took so long to find an actual exhaust shop or something that would, that would work. Cause all of the rest of the little towns, you go into a mechanic shop and like, Oh yeah, we have a welder. And by welder, they mean six car batteries and jumper, oh, yeah. jumper cables and a rod. Or we go to another place and they're like, yeah, we can make it. And they have schedule 40 pipe on the floor. I'm like, mm, I think we'll just keep on going with the soup <laughs> pan until,
2: until we find, uh, a proper exhaust shop. That's a great story. So you guys get back to Vancouver and you've spent all this time on the road. Did you go back into the normal nine to five or were you thinking this is just a reset? We need to figure out what we're going to do next or what? What did we do?
1: So the reentry process for us was quite difficult. We definitely had, I don't know if this is reverse culture shock or just culture shock, but coming back home was, I think, hard for both of us. And I don't think that's talked about that much in the overland sphere. I think it's becoming talked about a little bit more, but it's really, really hard coming back just for a variety of reasons. I mean, you've lived your life in such a different way and you're almost coming back into your old life again in many ways. But what we decided to do, I decided to go back to school and study herbal medicine on Vancouver Island um and Richard went back to uh, a former employer on Vancouver Island as well yeah,
0: I went and got a my quote-unquote real job back another another one of them and kind of I I didn't know that I didn't want to do that I I guess I thought maybe mm-hmm. a break was enough and that a different mindset was enough to mm-hmm. go back to that job that I would have been a career for 10 10 12 years whatever it was but I knew that it was not the job for me when we were working for one client, and we did a lot of heating and cooling and renewable energy for high-end homes. So mm-hmm. putting lots of solar panels and lots of geothermal or um, geo-exchange systems in houses that are nine to 17,000 square feet kind of thing. And I got a call from a client who was unhappy that the towel warmers in his master bedroom were not warming his towels fast enough. and. <laughs> We had just come from, you know, the villages of in the mountains of the of Peru and throughout all of Latin America, where we found that the most generous people we met were the people who had the least. And we just lived our entire lives outside for almost a year and a half. Mm-hmm. And we came back, and I had the phone call with this this gentleman, and realized immediately that this was not the place for me. So mm-hmm. at that point, I was like, okay, time for another change. I think I was there for about six months before that mm-hmm. happened, though.
1: I think the pace too is something that we noticed when we came back. We were really fortunate when we were gone that we had, we didn't work, but we did when we went back to. Canada, we knew that we needed to pay off some debt from that trip. And um, the pace of life was so much different. There was such a big adjustment for us coming back Mm -hmm. into North America again. So dealing with that was interesting Mm -hmm. as well.
0: No more enjoying coffee at (laughs) at sunrise. It was, let's try to get coffee as fast as possible while it's dark out and before the traffic gets too bad.
1: Right. Mm. Yeah.
0: So the usual. I, I think the thing was that we gained all of these different skill sets while traveling. And we right. had a different expectation of what kind of like budget we needed to survive. And I think that was very helpful. That's freeing, I think, because hmm. we realized that even when we came home, we could probably survive on half as much money as we used to make and still be happy doing things just because we we're able to budget differently.
1: And I think it gave us this increased confidence that if we needed to make a big life change, we're not afraid to. And so when we were living on Vancouver Island, we realized that it wasn't serving us living there. And so we decided let's move to the Rocky mountains in Canada. And we kind of made the decision quite quickly and, and moved and it wasn't a big deal. It was just in the next chapter. And uh, moving is a big deal. It's very stressful, but for us, I think we we were like, "This is what we want in our hearts, and we'll make it happen." Yeah. And we just did it.
2: Make a list, check it off. Yep. Well, it seems like you guys keep going through this cycle of who do I want to be whenever I grow up? You know, every, <laughs> every time. You know? And or, well, am I going to grow up at all? Uh, but uh, but you know, and I don't think most people have the courage to do that. So so I applaud you for saying, "Wait a minute, you know, this is not the life I want. Let me design." the life I want. And yes, I have to give up some things, but I'm going to get this in return. So you do this this next reset and you wind up working with Expedition Overland. And for folks who don't know, that's Clay Croft, one of the pioneers, I think, in the whole YouTube thing showing overland travel. So how did you guys get involved with Clay?
0: When we first came back after our trip so this was been, would have been 2016 or so. They saw what we were doing through Instagram and our blog. And mm-hmm. Clay called and asked if I wanted to go to South America on that trip with them and be the photographer mm-hmm. for that trip. But at the time, I thought it made more sense to stick with the real job and kind of like get back to real life. So I said no. And then a couple, couple, few more years went past and they, I think they were going on vacation and it was
1: around christmas time yeah
0: they it was around the holidays and they wanted to take some time off so they um were trying to find somebody to take over their social media for a couple few weeks while they went on oh. holidays so at that point i took over social media for them and did that for three years <laughs> i i took it <laughs> over and i just never gave it back essentially right yeah so i i kind of did that for them for yeah i think until till about well, till the end of last month. Yeah, it was about three years, and it was fun being able to grow their following from 116 to almost 216,000 followers over that time. And mm. but the the best part about that is spending time with Clay and Rochelle. Mm-hmm. They're two really good friends. Um, we have spent many a week. <laughs> Probably months and months of time at their house, and whether that was for an XO project or just to spend time there with them. But we no. spent a lot of time there. Yeah.
1: yeah.
2: Well, you guys were on season four of The Great Pursuit, uh, which I'd highly encourage folks to uh, to go check out. But at some point, they decide to challenge you to go to Tuktoyaktuk, It's the northernmost point you can drive to. Now you can drive to it in uh, Canada, and it's become uh, sort of a very common destination for overlanders yeah. who do it in the summer. Yes. Not the winter. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> so how did you get talked into going to tuck in the winter? Yeah, we,
1: it was Richard's it idea. My idea. <laughs> um, so yeah.
0: Clay and Rochelle were um, tossing around the idea of making the solo series Mm. Uh, videos so instead of having the usual big team multiple trucks go out and doing big trips they thought it would make sense to split it up over uh this so this was going into 2020 um split it up into three or four different couples or families Mm -hmm. and film one truck and a couple's adventure or family's adventure over a period of time so we were sitting around the warm fire in their Montana home and fires crackling and we're all cozy inside
1: brainstorming and
0: brainstorming ideas and I just was like looking at the map on my phone I thought well because there wasn't anything else in North America that was a destination that I thought was really exciting to get to Because Mm -hmm. I I feel like that's the easiest way to, it's like cheating, I feel like, to tell a story, like from driving from here to Ushuaia, there's a very obvious story that's being told from walking up in Canada and making your way through US, Mexico, Central and South America. So I thought for a a shorter trip, that's still in North America, that going to Tuck would be interesting, but that if we're going to be filming it, it better be something different than the average person does. So that Mm -hmm. meant your time. I didn't think about anything other than the fact that it would tell a good story um, and figured that other people are doing it. Truckers are doing it every day up that route, up the Dempster highway. So
1: I think too, because a lot of people are doing it in the summer, why not show it the scenery and et cetera in the winter? Because it looks a lot different. It's
0: the only different. time we drive the ice roads. Yeah.
1: Different attractions. So it's cool. Yeah. Perspective. Well,
0: so they immediately said yes. And then I said, Oh, <laughs> <laughs>
2: Yeah, it's kind of hard to back away when it was your idea. (laughs) So so you wind up taking their Tacoma with an AT Habitat on the back, which is a a great little camper, but it's not exactly what I would call a cold weather setup. So what did you guys do to make it where you could actually use it? The best
0: part was that my first plan was to just get a lot of decent outerwear. Mm -hmm. so that would be warm no matter what, lots of down. Um, Mm -hmm. But in the end, we put a Wabasto diesel heater in it. And Mm -hmm. I can't remember what the output is. It's something quite substantial, like 12,000, 11,000, 12,000 BTUs. And even though that tent fabric is breathing to the atmosphere, um, there are plenty of holes for wind to come through and all the rest of it, Um, no insulation whatsoever. When that heater was on, if it was minus 20 five Celsius out. Okay. Let's say it was minus 18 Fahrenheit. It was something Mm -hmm. like 60 degrees Fahrenheit inside when it was, when it was heating.
1: That was pretty impressive. It saved us a few times because overnight ice would form on the exterior canvas of the tent. mm
2: -hmm. And the
1: only way that we could close it completely was to run the heater and melt that ice down.
2: So, you get ready for this trip and you get to the Canadian border, and now then you're in a truck you don't own that's registered in the US. You're Canadian citizens, and it's got all this like really cool wraps on it and stuff like that. Was the folks at the border crossing really impressed?
0: <laughs> the, the first border crossing, they were not impressed and immediately said, Do you have the paperwork? And I said, What paperwork do you need? <laughs> and he said, If you don't know, you're not coming through.
1: Yeah, and Ooh. he was like, You have to go do your own research you have to do basically. Your own research which i guess we probably should have looked into it but we had crossed that border in those trucks before but i think we just forgot that we were in a group at the time um Mm -hmm.
0: (laughs) so
2: with the owners uh, yeah correct so so then that
0: our our backup plan which is pretty much what we would do at any other In any other country Mm -hmm. um that we had the problem we just went to the next border crossing next the closest one to the west (laughs) and
1: we did to be fair get some paperwork and uh the Mm -hmm. the border officer at the next border crossing was incredibly kind and he actually did a couple hours of research on how to get us in
0: yeah Mm -hmm. um so we were super grateful and we went into it very very apologetic saying I'm sorry we don't know exactly what to do but we haven't you know after a couple of hours of research we still really didn't know if we had the proper paperwork Uh, this is before getting the border crossing so we went and talked to the the border guard and we told him that and he said that's not your job that's my job to look into it there's no like there's no reason why you should know all of this so I said that's great Um, and he did a lot of work for us and he also he asked what time we tried to cross the other border and he said and when we told him, he said, "Ah, it seems like that shift change, so it would make sense oh, yeah. to help you." Yeah, and I said, yeah. "Okay, well, good to know."
2: So, in all of your international travels, your most difficult border crossing has been going into your own home country.
0: It was, yes. <laughs>
2: <laughs> now, yeah. so you did uh, this trip took about uh, four weeks, as I remember. You got all the way to Tuck, correct?
0: We did
1: yeah. Okay. Eventually. And
2: how much time did you spend there?
1: A few hours?
2: I think so.
0: <laughs> yeah, because we got up to, we got halfway up the Dempster Highway, and that's when we got stuck because the, the road north was closed due to severe windstorms. Mm-hmm. And we thought, okay, well, we'll just stay here for one day. And then if it's going to be severe windstorms, we'll just go to the next town south, which is Dawson City, and just stay there. Because mm-hmm. when we were in Eagle Plains, it was a hotel with a population of eight people in that whole like area whole area mm-hmm. there's nothing there right. mm-hmm. um so we woke up the next day and they had closed the highway south of eagle plains as well because of bad weather so we couldn't go farther north on the damster or south on the damster we were just stuck with eight people who are also stuck I right guess.
1: and then at that time is when the COVID 19 pan- pen it was declared a global pandemic i think when we mm-hmm. were in that hotel yeah and so we did eventually make it to tuck However, we felt that it was prudent just to go up and not really see anybody or talk to anybody. Uh, just things were, you know, developing and it's a sensitive area. So we just went up and went to the Arctic Ocean and took pictures and checked out the...
0: Oh, the dew line the site. The dew
1: line site. Yeah. Oh,
0: yeah. Kind of right.
1: Mm-hmm. Tootled around and went back down to Inuvik from yeah. there.
0: It gives us an excuse to go back because there were a couple of people we really, we were hoping to meet and, and mm-hmm. chat with. And it's like, there's a lot of culture up there that we didn't get to see at all because because COVID. Mm-hmm. So, yeah.
2: So what does it look like whenever you're in the middle of, of a windy snowstorm above the Arctic Circle? What's the experience like? You
0: definitely can't see anything. It's just white out of every windshield. Mm -hmm.
1: um I think you know it wasn't as cold as I was expecting but I think that's harsh that's due to the fact that it's war it was warming up for a bit so mm -hmm. I thought it was going to be a lot colder than it was um but actually on the way back when the weather cleared up because the temperature dropped significantly again there was a frostbite warning that's when Mm -hmm. it got really cold so I mean it was cold but it wasn't
0: but when it when it was minus again minus eighteen or twenty Fahrenheit, it was clear sunny bluebird day, no wind mm-hmm. and beautiful and but if it was hovering around you know I don't know doing the conversions constantly like if it was hovering around twenty two or twenty three Fahrenheit that's mm-hmm. when the the wind storms and the snow and everything came and made it difficult to drive anywhere mm-hmm.
2: so I have an indelicate question here when yeah. It's minus 30 outside and you're driving on the Dempster, and it's a long way, you know, from any one place to another. And you have to go to the bathroom. What the heck?
1: Yeah. The thing about winter is a lot of places are closed. And so right. that makes it a bit difficult. But I think for like number one, it's not a big deal. You just get out and you like pee on the side of the road or whatnot, mm-hmm. which yeah, I don't know. And then... Number two, you just have to kind of like fuel stations were still open, so you just kind of have to like plan. A yeah, little they're few bit. and far between.
0: But I felt <laughs> like I felt like on that trip, my body knew what to do It knew just to you know, hold <laughs> things in. And then when it when, it, when there was uh,
1: timings, everything. Yeah,
0: timing was everything, everything. So when when there was a uh, we just took the opportunity whenever it arose. So if there's a fuel Correct. stop. Even if they were 600 kilometers away from each other, you go stop, you go. No matter Um, what. Yeah, I don't think I ran into any like having to deal with going out in the snow or anything.
1: I think it's also more time consuming because you have a lot of layers on. So you've got like a base layer, (laughs) a pair of sweatpants, and then a pair of snow pads or something. And you're like, oh my gosh, this is taking forever to get undressed and dressed again
2: yeah having lived in arizona the last uh, 30 years i can't even imagine how that sort of cold would feel so is do you remember a specific sensation when you're out and it's the you know beautiful clear day but it's just bitingly cold i
1: think yes. biting is an yeah. excellent term for
2: that and I, I think so the last bit of cold i remember was
0: on our way south and we rent uh a lot of the elders were doing, so this was just south of Anubic. Um, and a lot of the elders were doing a caribou hunt because the, there's a 300 head uh, caribou herd that migrates through the area. Mm-hmm. They've survived on for years. And so they were out doing their hunt and they were bringing um, some of the caribou back to the road. And I remember I came out, I, I hopped out of the truck and I was, we were just chatting with some of the locals and at the same time I was filming just filming the Tacoma we had driving oh, yeah. driving past the Yukon sign, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I just remember that I'm fully covered up in in outerwear and I had some like medium weight gloves on because I still needed to use the camera. And mm-hmm. I was outside for a minute and a half and felt like I had lost feeling in my fingers already. That was the frostbite warning
1: wow. day too, and, Yeah.
0: And I could not help but just think how tough all those guys were out on the caribou hunt. So tough. Just-
1: and your nose, like inside of your nose feels like all your nose hairs are sticking together.
0: Yeah. Um, if there's any humidity, my any like my light beard I have would just get c- covered in frost and yeah. ice. And
1: My eyelashes uh-huh. that one time and I get cold easily, but yeah, it's, it's an interesting experience
2: mm-hmm. for sure. So in the midst of all this, we've already alluded to it. Uh, the uh, COVID pandemic begins to grip the world. And you are stuck in the middle of this trip. Borders begin to close. So how did that affect the end of your trip? It's tough because we had we had a lot of things planned
0: that were all cultural culturally based in Anubik uh-huh. and Tuck. It was kind of like the point of going up there was to learn about the culture yeah. and the people. And it just because of the COVID pandemic, it just started shutting all of those down, which was uh-huh. unfortunate. But in the end, we were still able to talk to um, a local Kylik up there mm-hmm. um, instead of doing all of the we had a we had a big plan of, to spend a couple of days with him but in the end we were able to sit outside in an igloo actually and just chat with him about local culture and how he shares it through his the tours he does up there and we met him because of expedition overland and they they went up with Kylik on their original Alaska Yukon trip. We had no control over it so I think it rest. also
1: expedited our journey back down south too because we weren't there was no reason for us to take our time, things were shutting down. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had moved out of our uh, apartment we were renting in Canmore in Alberta because we were gonna go on another big trip after the Arctic trip. And so we were like, oh no, we don't have a place to live, and <laughs> we we're coming back down from Tuck, and so we ended up. Uh, hanging out with my parents at their place in southern BC for a, a little while while we tried to figure out what the heck we
0: were going to do yeah, next. And then the because the U.S.-Canada border was closed while we were up there, that meant that we kept Exo's Tacoma for almost a year, I think.
2: Oh, wow. And,
0: and uh, our tundra was down, down in Montana to, for, for that point. Yeah. yeah.
2: What were your big lessons learned from that trip as far as dealing with traveling in cold weather?
1: I think redundancy is key. That was the big takeaway for us. Like, if you have a heater, what are you going to do if that heater fails?
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Even in the case of like water, you know, Mm -hmm. something fails, truck doesn't start, heater doesn't work. You only have so much time before your water freezes. So, how are you going to, you know, how are you going to deal with that? How are you Mm -hmm. going to make water from ice, I guess, things like that? Yeah. Yeah. And also realizing how fragile we are as as, as humans.
1: It was kind of a, I don't know. I wouldn't say emotional experience, but I think just realizing, in the in that climate in that situation, how vulnerable you are, yeah, was kind of interesting.
0: Yeah, because there was a there was also a point when we were up there. We had driven. There was a road, a a little side road that was plowed enough for us to get down. And we start we drove down, maybe three or four three kilometers or so, and mm-hmm. camped there for the night and went to start the truck in the morning, and nothing. It was like a dead battery. And tried to jump it, nothing, and then I just realized that the uh, battery terminals, because they were aluminum battery terminals, um, and like with steel bolts, I guess, um, they expanded and contracted different, t- different temperatures, different, mm-hmm. different right. rates, and because it was so cold, even though they were, you know, everything was torqued down in a warm Bozeman shop, <laughs> Um, but when we were up there in the cold, battery terminals were, were a little bit loose and that was enough to like make the truck from not starting. So all it takes is that to happen and the heater not to work. And all of a sudden you're like, oh, we're getting into a bad situation if we don't have warm weather clothes or cold weather clothes or communication or so Mm -hmm. on. Mm -hmm. So definitely made us start thinking about, oh, how about let's not drive 20 or 30 kilometers down a road that we might have to walk out. So let's, uh, we're, yeah. Nobody's coming to get us, I guess. So.
1: Yes. That being said, it was very it was a tough trip. It was probably I think more challenging than our South America trip in many, many ways. But the weird thing about it is that right now I'm like, let's chase summer. I don't want to do winter this year, but I'm so so excited to go back to an arctic environment at some point somewhere in the mm. world and I think about it often because it's so beautiful and different. And
2: Sounds like we have a Scandinavia trip. <laughs> yeah. You guys are now currently involved in what type of endeavors?
1: You alluded earlier to uh, we're, we're trying to figure out what we're going to do when we're growing up. So we're still working on that. Yeah. Go ahead.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Oh, I don't.
1: What are you doing right now?
0: Okay. What day is it? I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> there are just so many things. <laughs> okay, you go. We've had a
1: really busy couple of months, but I'm working with Overland Journal and Expedition Portal. I'm a senior Mm -hmm. editor there as of beginning of September, which is very exciting. And so I've been writing a lot and copy editing and uh, was recently added on as a podcast host on the Overland Journal podcast. So that's been a lot of fun. Um, Yeah, that's great. Yeah, so that's what I guess we've been up to. We've been busy going to overland Expo events and rebel rally and a bunch of other fun things so we've been kind of go 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 yeah it's since been September but
0: it's, it's been fun because now instead of Ashley writing and telling our story she's been able to tell other traveler stories because mm-hmm. there are a lot from mm-hmm. current to Past. decades ago
1: yeah one thing I've been really enjoying doing is researching overlanding history and uh, kind of like some stories that aren't necessarily mainstream. Uh, There are a lot of women's trips that happened all over the world, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, etc., like uh, yeah. a, a pair of women from the U.S., they took a Jeep and traveled throughout Africa. This was back in, I think, the 50s um, and wrote books about it. And not a lot of people let necessarily know about those stories. And so it's been an absolute honor, actually, to find these stories and read the books by these women from so long ago and share their story via Expedition Portal. So I've been really enjoying that a lot.
2: I mean, we think we're also cutting edge and doing something new, but this is Adventure of travel thing has been going on since I think we were created, you know, it's, it's just a normal human thing to go. I want to see what's on the other side of that mountain, mm-hmm. you know, uh, just a, a great desire. So that has to be really interesting to, to do that kind of research and, and hear those stories. Uh, mm-hmm. That's, that's great. So I'll be looking for uh, some of your writing then on, uh, in the journal and uh, on Expedition Portal. So, yeah, Richard, that, you're involved with Toyota Canada, is that correct? Yeah, we've done a, quite a few projects with them over the last three or four years, I think. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, usually it's project for project base, and whether that's taking one of their, the first videos we made for them, we produced for them, were including us and in our truck, um, we've mm-hmm. done two or three commercials. We did, uh, I produced a commercial that also included our truck, Little Red, um, but a TRD Pro Tundra. As well, that ended up in Cine, Cineplex Theatres, which was really, really mm-hmm. fun. Um, and yeah, hopefully we've got some more on the horizon. Um, we keep talking about some projects for them. I've got a bunch of ideas. So again, more telling our story in a different way. But hopefully some some of that works out. Then we've got Baja 1000 coming up. So we're going to go um chase the event for our friend harry wagner who's racing with alex baker they've got Mm -hmm. a side by side um program there but we'll go down and help chase that event and um photograph and film some things for them uh we keep on talking about doing more and more work for for overland journal and expedition portal on the on the video side of things so hopefully we can tell again some of our stories and some other other stories that way Mm -hmm. as well Um, yeah like lots and lots on the go Always chatting with um, with different companies who need content created. It's very, very cool that now when I look through my like if I go through my messages on my phone, like the last people yeah. I've texted, usually it's semi work related in terms of um, some sort of project. But they're all friends. They're all close friends, mm-hmm. and they're all in this like off road overland space, and we've kind of just smacked like put ourselves in the middle of it ourselves in the middle of it and said yes to a lot of things. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's been, it's been great. It's lots of cool things and things are always changing and usually saying yes um, turns into some fun opportunities.
2: Do you have any uh, future overland trips in the planning? I know that planning is difficult to do these days, but you know, you have to be thinking about it. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So before that XO trip up to Tuktoyaktuk, we had moved out of our apartment we were living in in Canmore, Alberta at the time. We moved out, put our stuff into storage. So we, our plan was to ship the truck to Europe and drive east through Central Asia and Russia, and eventually mm-hmm. making our way to Japan. Kind of bringing the truck back to where it was built because it was oh yeah, yeah. where it was built. So um, that was the plan. It's, it still it, is the plan. It still is the plan, but timing is difficult because just because COVID restrictions are so different in every country and And they're
1: changing, changing constantly.
0: And in our case, uh, we really, you know, we were going through so many different countries and on that trip that it makes like planning difficult, but also even trying to get shipping prices at this point is, uh, Mm -hmm. difficult. I know that based on, uh, most of the people bringing in product, that shipping costs have gone up two or three, four times. Oh, yeah. Um, I, I expect that shipping of vehicles the same, but to be honest, uh, we, we don't know yet. We don't know. We've, we've sent out three or four requests and had no, one no, resp- res- no one,
1: response. One response.
0: With a dollar figure?
1: Oh, not yet. No. <laughs> uh, we're kind of in the early the early stages of getting right. this trip sort of on the ground. Because I think we can move slowly. We just need to get our truck over there. And maybe right. we stayed in one spot for a while. So yeah. we'll see. Mm-hmm. We're we're tentatively moving forward at a slow pace. Yeah.
2: So little red will be thirty-one years old. And yeah. if you get the Coming opportunity, up. you're you're gonna take little red on this trip, I, I assume yeah. that you're planning. Yeah. Yeah. How will little red be different than it was say when you did the Pan American?
0: The biggest difference was that we now have indoor inside living space. Mm-hmm. Um mm-hmm. We we swapped out the the canopy and rooftop tent for a go fast camper, and oh, then used yeah. some uh, some goose gear products to build out the interior. So, it's not it's not a giant camper. It's not super luxurious, but it's pretty simple and comfortable, and significantly better than it was before.
1: Yeah, Richard put a sink in, so we have some running water we can use, which is great. That's a such a step up. Yeah, heater. A huge improvement over our setup last time. So, having that indoor living space is going to be a, a nice addition. Yeah.
0: And we tried to do, tried to add things um, like creature comforts where we could, but also really focus on being aware of size and weight of, of products, right. which is something we did not care about before um, mm-hmm. because we didn't know any better. But when the truck doesn't make much power and we're trying to keep it, Significantly under GVW, like, yeah, for legality reasons, but mostly be- so it can go up hills still. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And wear
1: and tear. And wear yeah. and tear on,
0: on the rest of the drivetrain. Yeah. So we were just really thoughtful in terms of every single piece that went into it was do we need this? Yes or no? If yes, how much does it cost? What are the other options? Um, how, much mm-hmm. how, how much does it weigh? And how much space does it to take up? Yeah.
2: Okay. So imagine for me, if you will, Yourselves not having taken the Pan American trip and thus not having any of the experiences that have come after that. How do you think that Richard and Ashley would differ from the two of you now? It's a dark timeline.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's a really dark timeline.
0: (laughs) I have no idea.
1: I don't know either. I think we had to do something. Like, I don't think that that...
0: We didn't have a choice.
1: Yeah. I don't think that timeline could have happened. I know that's not your question, but...
2: No, but I like that answer.
0: Yeah, it had to.
2: It was inevitable.
0: Yeah. yeah. It might not have been that trip, but it would have been something, it would have been else. something.
2: On November 9th, 2013, you were in uh, Baja. You had just uh, crossed the border. You're about four weeks into uh, your first trip and you blogged this, uh, how our lives have changed. There were five bullet points. Live in the present, admire the sunrise and sunset, simplify your life, strangers are just friends you haven't met and appreciate clean clothes. <laughs> we're so smart. <laughs> How do you feel about those words now? I got goosebumps.
1: Yeah wow good for us. I think we've <laughs> we've requested some of those for sure but some of them we still carry with us yeah yeah.
2: can learn a lot more about this adventurous couple by checking out the show notes on the guide gps blog we have links to all of Desta glory's channels there sounds like their journey is really just getting started so you'll want to follow along and don't forget to pick up your discount on a guide gps premium membership hope you all are finding some fun winter time trails to run thanks for listening in this is wade see you next time